Greetings, Rare Ones, and welcome to this special bonus series of the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast with me, your host, Joanne A. Hamilton. This special bonus series is an exploration into the frontier market country of Guyana. It is an exploration driven by curiosity so that together we can learn more about the varying emerging and frontier markets across the globe, as well as the individuals on the ground driving the action. So why Guyana? If you type Guyana in Google, you may be surprised by what you unearth. More than likely, a series of articles about or related to the country's discovery of oil in 2015. This has subsequently led to an influx of new investments in different sectors across the country. In this three-part series, you will hear me in conversation with entrepreneur and Guyana-focused merchant banker and asset manager, Stephen Jasmine. This series is titled Guyana Startup Nation. It consists of three parts. Part one, the origin story. Part two, the Guyana story. And lastly, part three, Startup Nation. Crucially important, this series, like all the Raybird series, are for informational purposes only. Nothing you hear in this series is investment advice of any kind. As always, I'm excited to share this content with you. So let's get to it. Bye for now. back to part two, the Guyana story. In this episode, you'll be given historical, cultural, and social context about the country. You'll hear about the role of CARICOM and the Guyanese economy. You'll get to see Guyana through an investment lens. You'll hear about when oil was discovered, the type of oil that was discovered, as well as the current atmosphere and attitude towards oil. You'll also hear why Stephen believes that Guyana has a blank canvas from which to build. Listen in to another fascinating conversation. Bye for now. So Stephen, you land in Guyana. So what are your first impressions when you when you get to Guyana? So I had been on a trip island hopping my way down uh, through the Caribbean, you know, started out in St. Kitts and Nevis, hit Jamaica, uh, hits Martinique, uh, and then ended up coming down and stopping at Trinidad on the way in and then landed in Guyana in uh, June of 2017 and was fortunate enough. I met some great people on my first trip in and they helped introduce me around and, and, and brought me into some different rooms and with that, you know, I just fell in love with the country, you know, and I, and I just saw opportunity everywhere. And, you know, I was fortunate along the way growing up, you know, I looked to history. I've been, you know, I love to study financial services history, banking history. I've read a lot of biographies over the years of all the, you know, major bankers. And, you know, one of the common themes and trends I've always seen is that there's two ways to truly create wealth for yourself and for your partners. And it's, you know, investing in war <laughs> historically, and or investing in development of frontier markets. And so with that, you know, I had a, my friend's father who ended up going over to Moscow when the wall fell down and opened one of the, the first Western style commercial real estate firms there, you know, and watching how he built his practice and what he did and how 
he ended up in you know a span of 10 years after the wall fell down building a billion dollar real estate portfolio you know i thought that guyana was going to need that same help and then also combined with my background in the oil field services sector i thought i saw a lot of opportunity there for you know some of my partners in the states and as well as just knowing all the understanding what the needs of the country were going to be my oil and gas background and quite frankly it was just a, it was a beautiful country that you know is a riverboat town country of guyana is a small country it's only 800,000 people and 95% of the population lives within 3 miles of a river or an ocean and so with the predominant predominantly most everyone you know living in and around the capital of the country georgetown and so through that process i just kind of felt at home because of the, the the climate and the the temperatures and you know are very similar to louisiana where you've got the offshore industry but you also have the mouth of the the mississippi river right there and the brown water and so you know i love river towns and i've always loved the water and and just said hey i i think i can make this work there seems to be there's something here and so it was, it was surreal and i fell in love with the people i mean the, they're welcoming they're they're warm and they're it's, it's interesting, you know, Guyana is a country of 800,000 people and it's it's one of the places, it's one of the only places on earth where Hindus, Muslims and Christians all coexist peacefully. And there really isn't any major religious strife to speak of. And yeah. so with that, it's been exciting and interesting, but it, you know, it was just, it just felt right. It felt like I was home when I first landed there and, and kind of was eager and you know, candidly, it was the first time I'd ever been on the continent of South America. And so this has also been kind of my first introduction to South America. But it was the, the biggest reason why I stayed was I saw the opportunity, but it was also an English speaking country. And I just, I felt safe and I felt comfortable. And, you know, all those factors said, hey, you know, there's something here and just followed my gut. It served, it served me well over my career so far, as we talked about. And, you know, it was what just felt right. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in this part of our series, we're going to really take a deep dive into Guyana. So for those listening in that don't know, because a lot of people don't know Guyana, Stephen. <laughs> yes, talked, I know. We talked about this Guyana, where, you know, me being from the Caribbean, it's like all of us know Guyana, you know, <laughs> but mm -hmm. Guyana is a South American country. It's uh well, I let you talk about it, Steve. Tell it, tell, tell the audience about Guyana, like in sort of sort of where it's positioned, a little bit about its political, economic history, just to give people a feel about where we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So Guyana is a, uh, it's like you said, it's the only English-speaking country in South America. It's a former British colony. Fifty-five years ago, it gained its independence from the crown, and it's a country. Uh, of two major populations, if you will, uh, ethnic populations. There's the Indo-Guyanese and the Afro-Guyanese. And then there's also the indigenous Guyanese, uh, which are more out of the Amazonian rainforests. Um, because Guyana being on the top of South America, to the west is Venezuela, to the south is Brazil, and to the east, the east is Suriname or Dutch Guyana. Yeah. So, you know, back from colonial exploration and colonial days, at the top of South America, you had uh, Venezuela, you had British Guyana, you had Dutch Guyana, and then you got French Guyana, and then Brazil wraps them all and and, uh, and goes down all the way to the to the bottom of the, the the continent. And so, with that, 
British Guyana is uniquely positioned uh, to really kind of influence the whole hemisphere. And quite frankly, you know, Guyana is considered, considers itself more accurately a Caribbean nation and not a South American or Latin American country, despite being on the continent of South America. Uh, Guyana is, you know, for some of your listeners who don't know, there's a Caribbean organization called CARICOM. I liken it to a mini version of the, the European Union. And with that, the CARICOM secretariat or the head of the CARICOM is actually headquartered in Guyana. And so, you know, historically before oil and over the past, you know, 55 years or 50 years prior to the discovery of oil, large scale oil uh, offshore, Guyana has been an agro processing center, uh, not processing, but, you know, an agriculture export driven economy. Uh, Timber has been a big export. Minerals and mining are a big export. So, you know, both on the bauxite and gold are two large industries. But historically, before oil, Guyana was one of the poorest countries in South America and Central America and the Caribbean. So not only because it because of where it's positioned at the top of the coast of South America, Guyana doesn't have, you know, the beautiful white sandy beaches that the rest of the Caribbean has. So there's not a lot of beach tourism opportunities historically and presently and frankly you know it being such a poor country they've and the price of energy is a major factor like all you know south american and latin american and caribbean countries and so with that you know they haven't been able to develop the value-added manufacturing to really get it to its next phase of development and that's one of the beautiful things about you know this big oil discovery is now guyana is going to be able to become you know, what I believe over the next 10 years will be the Singapore or Dubai or Hong Kong from a place in history standpoint as the financial center of South America, the Caribbean and Central America. Let yeah. me stop there and, and, and kind of see how, <laughs> see what your thoughts are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, w- I was going to tell you that um, uh, Guyana is known as the, I think it's the land of six peoples. Uh, very similar to, you know, like in Jamaica, Jamaica's, um, you know, every country has like its own uh, national motto. Jamaica is out of many one people. But this that's very Caribbean, you know, because the Caribbean is such a mix. But I, I think in Guyana, the six peoples are the Chinese, the Africans, the East Indians, the Portuguese, the Amerindians, and the Europeans. So it's all of those people in Guyana. But like you said, the majority are of African and, and East Indian descent. But Ghana is very diverse, like just as much as Trinidad and, uh, and Jamaica as well. So, yeah. And Guyana, Trinidad, and Jamaica have played a big role in the establishment of, of CARICOM. So, Guyana is quite a leader within, like, the CARICOM community. But like you said, within a South American context, completely different. <laughs> completely different. Like, they're the only English-speaking country on the continent. And I don't even think... I, like, I think if you speak to people from South America, when you mention Guyana, it's kind of like, hmm, Guyana. Like, nobody really knows about Guyana within, even within South America. You understand what I mean? Yeah, and I had no idea about that when I had first gotten there. And so this is, you know, one of the, and I had not spent any time really to speak of within Latin America, both Central America and South America. And so I, like everyone else, assumed that Guyana was, a Spanish speaking country and, you know, had all kinds of inroads, you know, and 
you know, from a banking standpoint, you would have assumed that they had drafted off of some of Venezuela's success over the years. Mm. And there would be a lot more there and that it would be very plugged in to the rest of South America. But the reality is, is that there's literally no connections. It is an island country in that regard. Yeah. Everything has to be imported. And there's a lot of struggles and there's a lot of, you know, opportunities, but it's a massive country too. You know, it's a country of about 86,000 square miles. And as its landmass, you know, it's got a large portion of the Amazon rainforest to the south. You know, there's big savannas. It's got, it's a huge country. And so with that, you would assume, you know, and there is some Brazilian influence, you know, especially down on the border and Lethem and, you know, and there's a lot of, there's some in Venezuelan influence as well, obviously with some of the immigrants that have come across, especially in like the gold mining sectors, there's a lot, but ultimately it's, it's more about an island nation. And that's part of the, the unique opportunity that, you know, you only realize when you spend four years in the country. But you're right. It is it is a country of you know many different peoples, and you know it's interesting to see all those different heritages kind of meld together. And you know I've referenced a little bit on the religion side, but it's you know it is a very tribalistic country, and and both within the different ethnic groups and and even subsets amongst those ethnic groups. You know what I mean? Because there's you know two different kind of branches of the the Islamic faith in the country that's represented, and then there's you know obviously many different Christian faiths that are represented. And so with that, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's almost like a lot of micro countries within a big country, mm-hmm. um, you know, and each of those different constituents have, uh, you know, their own political beliefs, their political views, and together you form, a, you know, a two major governments. There's, you know, a coalition government and uh, the Indo-Guyanese PPP administration. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's, it, it all kind of comes up to the top together into one, but, you know, it's not just a binary AB type country that you're you're used to seeing in a lot of these frontier markets. Yeah. Guyana, I, I, when I try to explain Guyana from, uh, I guess, like a cultural perspective to people, I say it's very similar to Belize. I don't know if you're familiar with Belize. Belize is also a unique country in Central America. It's a Caribbean country in Central America. And they speak English. I mean, they also speak Spanish, but it's it's very similar to, to Guyana in that sense of it's kind of like an outlier in the region because it's a CARICOM country as well, Belize. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I've not been to Belize, but along the way, I have a good friend that is based there and, and a retired uh, military man and out of London. And, uh, you know, he's been a friend and a mentor and He's uh, he's it's part of why he's doing so well in Guyana and, and having the success he's having is because he, he comes out of Belize and understands those cultural dynamics. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So looking um, into Guyana from an investment perspective, tell can you give us sort of like an, an overview? I know you, you mentioned it in the first part in part one of this series. As if we if if we wanted to invest in Guyana, what are the things that we should know? What are the things that we should understand about this country? Where do I start? <laughs> <That's a big laughs> yeah, tell you know, us uh, country profile. Give us yeah, the country down. profile. You know, ultimately, it's it's a wonderful country. It's very similar. I mean, your focus is on emerging and frontier markets, and yeah. so 
you've got a lot of background and experience with that, which is why I was excited to have the chance to, and the privilege to, to work with you on this. But, you know, with that, you know, it's the same challenges you face everywhere. You know, there's a lot of bureaucracy, you know, being a former British colony, they, they like their red tape. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, politics involved. Obviously, it's a very politically uh, interesting country, if you will. It's a very young country in the grand scheme of things. You know, it's only 55 years old since it's gotten its independence. And all of South America, including Guyana, has faced a lot of, you know, been a geopolitical pawn globally over the past 30 years during the Cold War and things like that. And, you know, Guyana was very much in the, in the middle of all that from its founding days. Uh, and that's part of some of the opportunities and the, mar the operating environment that you're walking into, you know, to, to truly understand a country, you have to understand its history. And I'm not going to say I'm an expert on Guyana's history, but being there and, and being on the ground, you really, you know, just through the colloquialisms and some of the sayings and you, some of the, you know, all the articles and, and just learning things along the way, as you kind of get to learn and understand the country over the four years, like I've done, you know, you, you really start to understand some of its history because to, to be able to be successful in the future or the forward-looking operating environment, you have to, you know, understand the, the, where it came from, the origin story, if you will, because that origin story is what influences the culture and the mindset and the people and how they're, they're experienced. You know, people only know what they know. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in the previous episode. Yeah. You know, what they don't know, and myself included, you end up, it becomes blind spots. And so with that, there are the typical blind spots or, or the typical frustrations of a front operating in a frontier market. You know, it originally took me, you know, two months almost to set up my first commercial bank account. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but then this day and age, it still takes a month post COVID here in the States to open a bank account. So, you know, but with that, it's just there's a lot of underdevelopment across the board. You know, historically, there's not been enough to go around in Guyana. And so it's very competitive. It's very, um, you know, if there's not enough going around, everyone's fighting for what little bit they can. And that, you know, people don't realize how much that becomes an underpinning psychological mindset. And so even when you get to these, these frontier markets, you know, there's usually 10 to 15 groups or families that, you know, are kind of running the country and control, you know, some of the key industries and the key parts of the, the ecosystem, if you will, because all a country is, is an ecosystem. Uh, and with that, you know, it's very competitive. And that was one of the, the first things I learned was that, you know, everyone's used to building walls around themselves because there's not enough to go around. And so the, the theory of working together and collaboration and, and, you know, the common good and that there's more than enough for everyone is just, it's exactly opposite of what their mindset's been. There's never been enough to go around. Like if you're sitting at someone else's table, literally eating, you're taking food off their table. If you're getting into business with someone else, culturally, they get very jealous because they think that that's taking away from them and, and their opportunity. And so this, you know, I learned that very quickly and it helped my position me to, to know not to, to be more of a Switzerland and work with everyone. I love instead that. Of, you know, aligning <laughs> myself with any one particular group or family, yeah. because I realized very quickly, it's a very tribalistic mentality. And, and, and that's a good thing, you know what I mean? Because it's, 
it's been needed. It's been required because historically there hasn't been enough to go around and, and they've needed to develop that mindset and, and that, and that way of doing business. And, you know, I look at it, a lot of people will look at that and say, it's a, it's a challenge. I look at it and say, it's, it's, it's a blessing because when you, when you have that mindset, people want to work harder. They want, they're more competitive. They want to, they, they want to push because they're afraid it's, it, they're afraid of the scarcity. You know, they're afraid that there's not enough to go around. You know, Guyana has had some very rough periods and it's 55 years as it's been growing up because they haven't had, they've been one of the poorest countries that just further is, exasperates the lack of development around corporate governance, around legislative laws. You know, the Corporations Act in Guyana is still very underdeveloped. It needs to be reworked and they're, they're working on it and they will, you know, but it's not as developed as, you know, in America, there's a reason 99.9% of any venture-backed startup company works with and is based in domiciles, its organization, if you will, out of Delaware, because Delaware has positioned itself as the, the leading jurisdiction with the most case law and the most understanding of how to handle problems and challenges as you grow businesses with investors and partners and all that stuff. And that's something Guyana doesn't have, you know, and so that's these are areas that really need to be enhanced and reworked and, 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 and retooled. And it takes money to do that. And so historically, they haven't had the money to do it. So it hasn't happened. And it, it's part of it's one of the many things that causes that, you know, self-fulfilling downward spiral, if you will, historically, that Guyana has faced. And so now with the the discovery of the oil and the wealth that's coming very quickly. And with technology, with technology, now all this stuff will kind of be worked out and, and, and retooled. But, you know, as a new investor coming into the country, it's something to keep in mind. And it's, you know, we work as bankers to structure our transactions in certain ways with our lawyers and accountants and advisors and all the various people I like to write checks to, <laughs> to help yeah. us on this journey, do it properly to help make it as safe as possible and to de-risk the investment uh, on the financial side. These are some of the things you have to take into consideration. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, one of the, the things I say in the intro for this podcast is that um, emerging markets, frontier markets, you can't clump them all together. But at the same time, there's more similarities than differences. And I think one of, in operating in, in these countries, and I think one of the similarities that runs through is the politics. You gotta understand the politics. You can't separate politics from everything else when you operate in these countries. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> it just, you know, like I, I guess in the US or in, in, you know, more developed countries, you can, but you know, if you're in Africa, if you're in the Caribbean, in Latin America, Middle East, politics is just, it's all intertwined, you know? So like you were saying earlier about, you know, trying to be sophisticated and, and walk that line to know not to, you don't want to align yourself with one group or another group. Like that's all a part of it. Like it's really, it's really a game that you have to play really, really well to be successful. Yeah. And it, it's something you learn and you can only learn by being on the ground and working in the operating environment. And to your point, with my background, you know, in technology and, and, and venture capital and, and, and experience, you know, dealing with startups, which, as we talked about, you know, I believe Guyana is a startup nation. Um, it, it's facing a lot of those same challenges and, and those same issues. And, but with my experience and my abilities, 
I know how to mitigate that and navigate that. And, 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 what, and that's part of what I've spent the past four years working through. You know, historically, you know, there's two major political parties, as I alluded to. There's relatively the Afro-Guyanese-led party, and then there's the Indo-Guyanese-led party. And, you know, both parties have a long history in the country. There's good and bad about both sides of the equation. You know, as a banker, it's not my job to get in the middle of some of those things. I stay on the outside and I will work with the government of the day and I support the Guyanese people as a whole. And I'm, I'm here, you know, like the international oil companies, my view of the country is that it's their country. It's not my place as an outsider or gringo, as I like to call it, to come in and dictate or really align myself with either government. I want to see all of Guyana succeed and I want to help contribute value to everyone. And the growth that's coming is going to happen irregardless of who's in power. And ultimately, that's what we're working through. And as Guyana goes through these kind of gyrations and these, you know, power struggles, if you will, because if you've done any research, you realize that they had a, you know, a five-month disputed election last year that I was that I took part in, which I never thought I'd live through and, and witness firsthand. You know, a, mm. a, a Latin America, a frontier market election process, but it was quite an interesting journey. And it was, you know, it was an experience. And it's a part of, if you look at every other market that's gone through these same cycles, political realm is a bit challenging. You know, for me, I've I talked a little bit about SC3's background as looking to bridge the gap for financing and working with cities and governments and infrastructure. You know, in the United States, you know, I've done a lot of work through the various organizations I've been involved with on the, the startups and consulting side, working with US, the U.S. government and different U.S. Uh, different states and municipal municipalities and even down all the way to the county level. And so government's always been a big part of my career. And ultimately, I would say you alluded to it a little bit, but to really be successful in an environment, you do have to operate at the intersection of government policy and business opportunity. And so with that, it's, you know, and in the United States, it's, you know, I've been fortunate, my partner that I founded Flashpoint with has worked hard and, and has gone out and with our ability to navigate governments in the US, you know, we've secured commercial hemp processing licenses and grow licenses in Alabama and Louisiana. And so, you know, with that, we do understand and we've learned how to do it in the tier one markets. And so now coming down to a country like Guyana, I understand what it should look like and how it should function. And then it's helping get Guyana to the point where it's kind of functioning in the same way. Because, you know, in order for investors to be successful investing in a country, the, there needs to be the legislative environment to support that investment. And I'm not talking about just incentives for investors and tax breaks and those kinds of things. You know, it's, it's the rule of law and, and, and structure and, and, and the maturation of society as a whole to be able to take advantage of it and create a playing field that is fair to everyone. Because that's the biggest thing foreign investors look for when they come into these markets is how developed is the, is the legislative framework and how protected are we and how, how are we going to be able to, to grow this investment? How are we going to be able to, to take the profits out once it's time? How can we work with the local country to, to support it and, and participate? because it has to be a win-win for everyone. It, you know, the, the, the age of imperialism is long, long gone. Mm. Uh, you know, some would still say that, you know, the oil companies running in, coming in and throwing their weight around are, are the same thing. But, you know, if you really want to get an education, go spend some time studying 
how Saudi Arabia and mm. the UAE and the Emirates and, and, and Qatar and, and the GCC was developed. And, you know, everyone knows the GCC of today. But if you go back 50 to 75 years, you know, it was the oil, the international oil companies that came in and that built everything. But they played a much more, I want to say, domineering role of how the country was going to be developed. Yeah, and, absolutely. you know, in this day and age, now those companies realize it's their job to stay out of it and not get in the middle of it. And that is one thing I think has been done very well, quite frankly, compared to, you know, I don't have the firsthand experience, but I study things a lot and do a lot of research. And as I've been on this journey, I've spent a lot of time studying how these markets have developed in other parts of the world and, and looking for the, the patterns and practices, my computer hacker mindset. And, you know, with that process, you know, I see a lot of similarities to your point, but I also see a lot of differences. And it excites yeah. me because those differences are just going to speed up the evolutionary cycle of the, of the country and speed up the growth cycle because of technology and transparency and, you know, all the good things that come by being able to start from scratch today. Guyana is going to be so well positioned to move into the future that I, I, despite being probably one of the bullish people on Guyana you'll ever meet, still don't fully appreciate, you know, what's to come in Guyana. But I know that it's going to be beyond everyone's wildest imaginations. Jump into why you got to Guyana in the first place. So Guyana discovered oil, I think it's in 2015, right? Yep. So how, what's the story behind of that? How was somebody out there one day? <laughs> Is it that kind of story? Or were, did they suspect that something was there? And I'm very curious to know, why so late? Why only in 2015? Like, I, one would assume that, you know, you would, you would know by now in 2021, all the areas of the world where there is potential of having oil, right? No, absolutely. And, and, and it's a great place to start. So Guyana's oil resource back in, I want to say it was 2002, but it, I may be a couple years off, but right around the turn of the, the century, uh, big report came out that's often referenced that believed there was a resource off the shore, off the coast of Guyana, you know, that could be upwards of 10 billion barrels, I think was the initial estimate, or 12 or 13 billion barrels, I believe. Okay. Um, and with that, Exxon has owned their lease in the country since I, I want to say mid 2000s. And they, and there's been exploration, there's a, a local, so anytime you have an offshore resource from a development standpoint, you know, it's historically, if you look back over the past 75 years, offshore oil and gas was the most expensive way to get the oil out of the ground, right? Because it's obviously cheaper to just drill a hole and put a, a wellhead on it and pu pull the oil out of the ground. It's why the Middle East has been so successful because over the past 75 years or 150 years, you know, they've well, 75 years in the Middle East, 150 years in the global oil markets, they've, they're able to get to that oil. It's very shallow in the earth. And, 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 but ultimately, every day you pull out a barrel, that's one less barrel that's there. And so, you know, there's all kinds of complex growth and decline curves. But the, the short answer is, is that it's been, you know, a, the resource itself is 100 miles off the coast of Guyana. And it's only within the past, since about 2012 to 2015, the technology has got to the point where the cost of getting the oil out of the out of the ground has decreased to such a rate that 
you no longer have to worry about it. Um, and it's the most economically viable way currently to get oil out. And so with that, in 2015, uh, Exxon you know, found oil, they announced it. And since then, when I landed in Guyana in June of 2017, it was a 2 billion barrel resource. As of today, it's roughly a 10 billion barrel resource. And now also Suriname has found oil. And don't forget, you know, Guyana is right next door to Venezuela, which is one of the world's largest oil reserves and has had has been through its oil growth cycle, you know, but also has faced a lot of challenges. And, you know, as of today, Venezuela is pumping around 300 to 350,000 barrels a year in oil. And Guyana is already pumping 120,000 barrels a day. And so the field has been the quickest field to ever come online uh, from a deep water offshore perspective. All in, the cost of production will be, you know, originally analysts thought it would be 30 to $35 a barrel, but as they keep finding more oil and they've had roughly 20 oil or commercially viable wells that they've drilled successfully out of about 22 wells using all the new state-of-the-art technology that's been developed. And so, you know, in deep water, in oil exploration and oil and gas upstream exploration, you know, your batting average is usually, if you're doing 20 to 30%, when you're drilling holes, you're doing really well, you know, but each one of those holes costs several hundred million dollars to drill, you know, especially as you're bringing the infrastructure online. But in Guyana, they've been able to find oil in 20 out of 22 holes in a row, or, you know, and, and probably out of 26 holes that have been drilled since 2015. And so with that, it's, it's created a confidence and they've been able to prove the resource. And so you, the upward number, you know, has been revised that from the report that was issued back that I referenced earlier. And now they're looking at, you know, between 20 to 25 billion barrels is what some are predicting will be found in total. But either way, within the next five years, Guyana will be producing north of 1 million barrels a day. And their price of production will be, you know, between 20 and $25 a barrel which is a fraction of what the United States, now that it's energy independent, is producing oil at with all the fracking. Uh, that's closer to $40 a barrel. And so with that, this is one of the most commercially viable uh, fields in the world. And so, and it's also an ultra low sulfur uh, crude, which the LISA crude has got a specific gravity between 31 and 33%, which is the easiest to process and it's the most environmentally friendly uh, type of oil. So if you look to places like Russia and you look to places like some of the, a lot of the China production and, and Venezuelan and Iranian production, that production is, is the, is the super heavy crude. It's, it's almost like a sludge that they pump out of the ground. And so there's a lot of refining that needs to go into it, which means there's a lot of costs associated with it. And it also burns very dirty. And so with that, it's about shifting it so that it, it's, it's just a very desirable type of crude. So not only is it a large resource, it's also a very desirable resource and it has a low cost of production. And so you don't need to know a lot about oil and gas, but if you've got a low cost of goods to produce and you've got a lot of it, because there's a lot of infrastructure investment that has to be invested. So a lot of times you'll hear about people finding oil, but not moving forward with commercialization of the wells. It's because there's not enough there for it to make sense because they have to invest so much money to build out the infrastructure to get the oil to market. And so with that, you know, in, the, in Guyana's case, it kind of has hit all three checkboxes and it's why it's such a uniquely positioned asset globally.
And I love to tell people who are really looking to, to dig into Guyana over the past five years, one of the first places I tell them to start is, you know, go pull the annual reports from Exxon and Hess and especially Hess. Yeah. And you'll see how these companies literally liquidated out and sold off large pieces of their interests to the oil and, and their exposure to the oil and gas sector in other parts of the world to be able to raise the cash to, to quickly bring these oil fields online. And so that's that's a big deal and that's an exciting prospect. And, and to, to watch a trillion dollar company like ExxonMobil sell off some very solid assets, if you will, to be, you know, in order to position themselves to have the cash on hand to make their capital calls necessary to invest in Guyana really kind of tells you the importance that they see in these fields and, and the opportunity that's going to be coming and, and how Guyana is uniquely positioned in the region to, to take advantage of it. Definitely. Here's what I'm curious to, to know about, uh, Stephen, do you believe that, I mean, this, this is all very new to, to Guyana, this, this oil and everything. How, like, what is the temperament like? Are people excited? Are they worried? Are they scared? Because as we all know, oil can be a curse, you know, oil can be a curse. And we know that, um, sometimes, you know, countries, they, they find, they get oil, they find this new oil wealth and things go south, right? They don't always go well. And that has nothing to do with the discovery of oil. It's more about the management of the country. But I just want to get an idea of what, how, how do people feel about the new, um, this new oil boom that's going to come? And do you know, how is, how are the people preparing? How is the government preparing? Are they looking at other countries? Are they, do they have a plan, a 40 year plan, a 50 year plan? Like what's going on on the ground? Yeah, no, great question. It's, uh, you know, there's a, and you alluded to it a little bit, uh, from an academic perspective, you know, one of the terms that gets bandied about is, you know, the Dutch disease oh, yeah. that that can follow some of these countries that, that, that have these resource fines and it's the natural resource curse as some of some refer to it. You know, there is that there very much is that concern. And I absolutely see it, you know, as a potential to happen in Guyana. You know, it's it's not it can't be dismissed. But what I can say confidently is that because of technology, because there's not a lot of legacy infrastructure that Guyana has to deal with, because everything is new and it's kind of a tabula rasa or blank slate on a going forward basis, the government and the country and the people are in a position to really knock it out of the park. And, you know, the question that I get asked, you know, in the boardrooms and, and when I'm talking to in the investment committees and things like that, you know, globally, is Guyana going to go the way of Norway or is it going to go the way of Nigeria? You know, oh, yeah. and and it's a valid concern. And it, it's 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 really kind of two ends of a pendulum. And and so my answer is always. No one knows. And if anyone tells you they do, they're lying. Ultimately, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I personally am of the belief that Guyana is going to fall somewhere in between. I believe that the size of the find is of geopolitical importance globally. And so once again, Guyana is going to become a a leverage point for a lot of the different countries and the different parts of the world that want to come in. Prior to the discovery of oil, 
China and Russia and America all had big influences in the country. But as the size of this resource has come in and the United States is winding down and trying to exit, you know, some of its responsibilities out in the GCC because they're now, we're a lot more energy independent in the States. I believe that Guyana, with all the investment from Exxon, is a, an asset that's of geopolitical importance globally and that the United States views it as such and, and from a policy perspective is making it a very critical strategic priority on a going forward basis. And so I, with that influence and, and those pressures, if you will, you know, I believe that Guyana will, will truly end up falling somewhere in the middle. And just because of technology and transparency and accountability that exists today, you know, it's, it's not going to face some of the same challenges that a lot of the African dictatorships have faced. Guyana has been, you know, a republic the entire uh, time it's been independent and they've had political unrest and political uncertainty and and a lot of political tension over the past 55 years of their young history, but they've managed to maintain, you know, a peaceful government structure. And, and that's something that, you know, you can't look to a lot of the countries in Africa and see that. And, you know, on our previous, earlier in this conversation, we talked about the six peoples or the six nations that are, make up the, the Guyanese experience. And, and with that, that's six different viewpoints. So it's not just a one viewpoint wins type of country. And so I think that's helped to keep it balanced and fair. And where the money's going to come from, the reality is we track, you know, who's coming in and out, you know, and the, and the jets and stuff that are coming into the country. And in that process, I can tell you that there's not been an overseas power and an overseas, you know, money center that has not come wanting to do business with Guyana. You know, right now, what Guyana is working through is whose money do they want to work with at the government level? You know, everyone's wants a seat at the table, you know, especially as we get into a post-COVID era where governments globally have printed so much money. And I believe we're entering a period of hyperinflation and then quickly into stagflation. And with that, at a global, from a global perspective, Guyana is uniquely positioned that the growth that's in Guyana is tangible. It's needed. It's real. You can touch and feel it. Does another hotel need to be built in in New York City or in London or even in any in Bogota? Maybe, maybe not. But when everyone's economies are shrinking, you know, last year Guyana was the fastest growing country in the world, uh, even despite COVID. Pre-COVID, it was supposed to have a growth rate of about eighty-five point six percent per the IMF. And uh, as of March this year, when the IMF issued its its closing out reports for the economic growth, it still ended up growing at roughly about 43%. And it was the only country in the entire hemisphere that had positive GDP growth. And so that's a big deal when you really start looking at the numbers and you start looking at the trends and you look at the implications of that, because that shows and proves the thesis that this is real growth and not just fake growth that's being propped up by printing money by some of these countries around the world to, 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 to fight their way out of the shutdowns and the supply chain shocks that happened as a result of COVID. Yeah. You know, I'm not surprised that investors say that to you because you, we can look at Azerbaijan, we can look at Ecuador, a few, uh, when Ecuador found oil, of course, there's Nigeria and Angola and all the oil rich countries in, um, in Africa, right? There seems to be this trend 
that oil is discovered, and then after that, everything goes south, right? So, um, how do you how do you counteract those arguments? I mean, like I know you just said nobody knows; um, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. But how can you de-risk that? Like, how can you de-risk that? Is it a matter of like looking to see what policies the government are going to put in place, regulations, if they have a plan? Like, how how do you how do you de-risk that? Yeah, how do you plan for that? How can you tell predictions? I guess. Yeah, well, it's it's you want to you, you lead from the front and and you really help working on the ground is such a critical component of that, and that's one of the things. I've realized early on was that, you know, I couldn't go half in on Guyana. Mm. I needed to go all in. And over the past four years, you know, it started out spending two weeks a month in the country. And then, you know, I'd be back on the road for another week or two, and then I'd spend a week or two home. And then from there it went to four weeks. And then, you know, now, you know, it was up to six weeks and then two weeks overseas culminating with last year during COVID spending 330 days in country. And the only real answer I can give people to that is that ultimately the investors that invest in these markets understand that risk, first of all. And right. so they understand it and they're able to, to mitigate it themselves and accept it more importantly. And that's the people I'm looking to work with. And that's the people that are already here and coming. And from that, you know, the next piece to the puzzle is how's the local country going to grow and how is it going to ensure they're doing that? You know, and one of the things I point to is, you know, everyone in the Caribbean at least knows Guyana's political history and, and knows some of the, the challenges it's faced. And so they're, they understand that. And that's why they'll end up being the first check writers to come into Guyana, you know? And so just like consider the Caribbean capital markets, if you will, the angel investors of Guyana, because they understand it and they're going to be the first ones to come in. And then who's going to be the second check writers and who's going to be the third and fourth check writers. I fully understand and see and, and, and know, but you know, it's, you got to work with people that understand that risk. And then part of it too, is you get compensated for that risk when you can mitigate it as much as possible and you're willing to take those chances. And so, you know, over the past four years, by getting to learn the culture, getting to learn the mindset, getting to learn the essence of Guyana as an operating entity and as an ecosystem and as a, an operating environment, we've really, I'm not gonna say we figured it out completely because no one ever does, but we have become the world's foremost leading experts in it. And I don't say that lightly, you know what I mean? And I know what the gravity of that statement is. And I can tell you that there are very few, I'd say probably less than five other bankers globally that, you know, even understand Guyana a, a tenth of what I do. And none of them have made the, the, the commitment to come in, you know, and that's not discounting the local Guyanese and, and the local banking community and their, the, the organic capital market system. But, you know, the Guyana and the, that capital market system that was built and is there that exists today is, you know, a fraction of what it'll look like tomorrow. And that's where, you know, I see a lot of the growth and the opportunities. And that's where we're positioning ourselves to take advantage of that and really help de-risk this and work with the right partners that understand the risk, are comfortable with it, and know what to look for and know that and know and appreciate that they need a partner like us to be their asset manager. Because we are on the ground operating. We, we do have the relationships. We do have the access. We do have, you know, the understanding 
to be a successful asset manager. And are we going to get it 100% right? No, there's risk in life. Every day you wake up, you could walk across the street and get hit by a bus. Every day you wake up, you know, someone gets struck by lightning. You know what I mean? And so you can never completely mitigate that risk, but it's our job to help understand it, explain it, and navigate those waters. And that's where we earn our piece of the pie. And, and it's, it's where we create that value for investors. And so it helps align where they're going and where we're going. And so it's, you know, and then focusing on, you know, smart money too is another key component because money is easy to get access to, especially when you have opportunities like this, but you want to work with smart money. And that's really where our focus is at this stage. You know, we're not raising discretionary funds. We're not looking to just go around and write checks as an asset manager yet. We know that the economy, you know, I've had people offer, you know, to give me money or want me to run money for them and deploy capital, you know, and they want to give me, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to do that right now, but it's just still too early. And I'd be doing a disservice to them and myself if I was trying to run, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and deploy it because candidly, the country's not ready to absorb it. Exxon is able to invest that amount of money because they've got a whole monopolized infrastructure that they're building. But for the rest of the country, the long tail, if you will, from a development standpoint, that doesn't exist. And, you know, a lot of investors want to come in when the government starts spending money. And the beauty of Guyana, and I think it's one of the signs that helps me talk about how they're going to be more in the middle, is that they've not been squandering the oil wealth that's been generated to date. You know, the country's not only found oil over the past five years, they've put it into production. And as of this month, uh, they broke the $500 million mark in revenue generated from the oil wells. That's literally, I want to say, a seventh of the company's, the country's current global debt. You know what I mean? And so they've got, they're very well capitalized for the future and they haven't been squandering it yet. You know, they're waiting to put the right regulations in place and the right corporate governance in place to manage that wealth. And I firmly believe that it will be managed responsibly. And because of, you know, the transparency in the financial services sector nowadays, it'll be done in a manner that's very above board and very clean. And, and, and that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that we are uh, the ivory tower and the white knight of the country. And we look to do honest and fair business and, you know, much like the international oil companies. And, and we're not here to play, you know, those typical frontier market shenanigans, you know, and if, if people want to play that way, we wish them well and, and, and let them go do it their way. But this is where we've taken a more holistic approach. We're vertically integrated as an asset manager. We're not just deploying capital, but we're, you know, we're overseeing it with our Bain Capital and Bain Consulting model. And this is where we've positioned ourselves to, to really be able to, to take advantage of it and to de-risk it because it's all about risk management and risk mitigation. Right. And so you know, there's, there's currency risk, there's country risk, there's political risk, uh, there's, you know, all kinds of, ex you know, execution risk. When I first started telling people about Guyana, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of people that said, oh, well, they'll never get that asset producing oil. You know, and and little did they know that it would be the fastest offshore field to ever come online and, and go into production. You know what I mean? And so every day that goes forward, you know, the risk profile for the company starts to go down. And as a result of a lot of the uncertainty and as a result of the country really kind of hit pumping the brakes, if you will, when they found the oil and just not going out crazy, like a young guy that's just inherited a bunch of money, you know, and, and going and buying a Ferrari, you know, they haven't done that yet. And really, they've done a great job as a country of trying to come up with a holistic plan and focus on 
reducing the cost of energy with the gas to shore pipeline. And, you know, and in a frontier market, and I'm sure you've encountered this term, it's, it's called capacity building. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the development banks have come in and really helped, you know, with the amount of, uh, with the critical nature and the, and the importance of the asset on a glo- from a global perspective, there's been a lot of, in a lot of countries and a lot of the, the major NGOs, you know, have come in and are helping to provide some of the leadership and guidance. So you've got the World Bank, the IMF, the IADB has played a critical role over the past five to six years, you know, and, and the country itself has just tried to take that long-term oriented approach. They're doing a good job of diversifying away from just being in a one-trick pony with an oil asset. And so I can point to a lot of instances that they've done it. And, you know, ultimately my current investment thesis for Guyana is not, it's, it's probably 5% oriented around the oil field services sector and really more focused on enabling the growth of the country from a commercial real estate development perspective. I mean, there's still no class A office space in the country from the, the agriculture development, the value added manufacturing that can now occur, the criticality of the, the, the strategic nature of where it's positioned. There's gonna be either a road or a railroad from the interior of Brazil to Guyana which will enable goods to get to market five days quicker for, for those Brazilian companies. And by doing that, that's once again going to create, Guyana is not just a oil and gas country, but as a strategic beachhead for the entire hemisphere. And once again, it, it helps further and support, you know, my investment thesis that over the next 10 years, Guyana will become the Dubai or, or the, the Singapore of the region. And it'll even assert Panama from a financial services importance in my belief. And ultimately it, it's going to become, you know, and it's because of its, you know, British heritage and the fact that it speaks English and the unfortunate fact that, you know, the rest of Central and South America is kind of starting to experience a period of stagflation that all that money and capital is going to want to come into Guyana because that's where the, is, is the growth. And so coming back, you know, the first check writers I said are going to be the Caribbean capital markets. And, and then from there quickly, I believe, you know, a lot of the Latin American money is going to start to come in and the country of Dubai has made Guyana an economic imperative uh, and a strategic imperative. And so they've provided Guyana one and a half million dollars to go to uh, the Global World Expo and have a pavilion so that Guyana can get access to trading partners and to, to, to organizations throughout the Middle East, because the Middle East understands the growth cycle that Guyana is going through, because like themselves, Guyana is now facing, you know, they were the ones that, you know, one of the families I work with, you know, his father was on the founding board of Saudi Aramco. And they watched the colonial exploration, oil and gas exploration playbook be executed. And they understand that Guyana is going through that same process. But now they're capitalized. And because that was just, you know, less than 50, 60 years ago. And so now they're capitalized and liquid and in a position to really be able to support and enhance and, and, and chase that growth. And so with that, it's really a huge opportunity moving forward as to how quickly the country is going to develop because all this money that understands it and is looking for growth is going to come in. And when you have different you know, money centers competing to help create a market or build a market and grow a market, you end up creating that competition that allows you to accelerate the growth and to, to lower the cost of growth for the countries, for the investors, and it creates a more efficient market, which is critical. 
And so with that, you know, that's really how I see the growth over the next 10 years and how, you know, the political risk plays into it. But there's a lot of people that need the growth of Guyana, you know, and Guyana still doesn't even have not only a McDonald's and only two internationally flagged hotels, it doesn't even have any class A office space yet. You know what I mean? And so go to any major over the next five years, as I said earlier, you know, Guyana will be one of 11 countries producing a million barrels of oil a day. And ultimately, they're going to be in a position to, to take advantage of it. And they have all these people wanting to step in and help and, and play a, a critical role. You know, Uncle Sam, Mike Pompeo from the previous administration in the United States came in and, and, and talked about how Guyana was a, a, you know, a strategic imperative for the United States. They came in wanting to invest over a billion dollars through the Development Finance Corporation and, and through Uncle Sam. You know, you have all these countries wanting to help and jockey for position with Guyana. And I hope Guyana continues to stay relatively neutral and makes the right choices and makes the right partnerships so that it can continue to grow. And I believe that it will, and its leadership understands the criticality of it and knows that they can't put all their eggs in one basket. And as a banker working in Guyana, I know that I want a diversified group of partners and that I'll be able to use the competitiveness of all these different groups seeking to get access to the market to my advantage and to the country's advantage as we grow it together. Indeed, definitely. And I think also um, a success story in the Caribbean, like Guyana, I mean, that's a win-win for the whole region because it's going to spill over into the other countries. And then looking at South America, right now things aren't going too well in South America. So if, if Guyana can position themselves as that, you know, beacon of light coming out of South America, I think as a whole, it will just be good for the entire region. So, yeah, I'm with you. I hope they can. the government continues to make good decisions. And like you said, stay neutral and, and just hope for the best. I guess that's all we can do, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and ultimately, all you can do is play with the hand you're dealt and, you know, sure. bob and weave as as the market evolves. And that's where you know, having the right local partners and being boots on the ground gets you that market data first. And and that's really the criticality of it. And so yeah. being, you know, understanding it before it hits the press and before the rest of the world knows it, that's where as an asset manager, you're able to make bets and to, and to position yourself to, to take the maximum advantage of it. And um, don't underestimate the power of local knowledge, because I think that's the advantage I mean, like you said, you got to understand there's risk, but local knowledge is key. That's it. Once you have that, you, you're halfway there. I do have one final question that I want to ask you, Stephen. I'm just curious to know, have you looked at other countries in the region that have oil? So, for example, like Trinidad and Aruba, just from a research perspective, you know, just looking for insights on how they've developed and, and just because, you know, they would be more similar to... I guess Guyana more so than say, you know, another country in the world that found oil like Nigeria or Dubai or what have you. And and again, I'm I'm just speaking randomly. I don't even know if it makes sense. But have, have no, no, that it, something that you can yes, I, I I've obviously studied a lot of the oil production. You know, my focus has been, you know, when you're studying things, you want to find things as similar to the profile of the Guyana oil find. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, where my study has been really oriented is offshore oil discovery, okay. large quantity of oil discovered, 
you know, so some of these places like you're alluding to, you know, Trinidad, for example, mm. Trinidad's kind of at the end of its oil life cycle. Okay. And it's a great example. There's a lot of lessons to be learned coming out of, you know, last I, I heard a data point. I'm a data guy, you know, and I heard a data okay. point. <laughs> um, sure. The economic production of Trinidad's oil development over the past hundred years is roughly about $90 billion. Okay. And so that's a lot in today adjusted for today's dollars. Okay. And in that $90 billion, you've seen how a country's developed and you've seen what they've done. But then you also have to take that development scenario and look at where the differences are and where the similarities are. And so with that, you know, I've, this is why I've kind of skipped a lot of the regional side okay. and been focused more on the Gulf Coast countries because from the, a population standpoint and a growth standpoint. So that $90 billion and the resource and development growth of Trinidad over the past 100 years is a much different life cycle and story and arc, if you will, than the GCC countries, okay. because there were different factors and the, you know, the size of the rock find wasn't, isn't the same. The position, you know, Trinidad was never one of the 11 top oil producing nations in the world, you know what I mean? And Guyana will be. And so okay. that's okay. a very elite club. And so you kind of, when you're doing analysis, you, you want to learn it every, learn from everything and look everywhere. Like you, you're absolutely right. But you also want to make sure you're trying to compare apples to apples. And so this is where I've spent a lot of time studying, you know, the Gulf Coast countries. I've studied, you know, some of the African development, mm -hmm. some of the, you know, obviously I started my oil and gas sector work down in Louisiana with the United States and, and the offshore oil and gas industry. But, you know, and with that, it's about, you know, finding the right comparison pieces. And it's hard to find a perfect fit. You kind of got to look for different pieces of the puzzle from the different profiles. And to your point, some of the Caribbean producers and, and some of the Latin producers have interesting parallels. You look to Venezuela, that's a, you know, a prime example. Yeah. You know, and it also is a prime example of everything that can go wrong and the, the, the wrong decisions that can be made. And, but at the same token, you, you look to, to Norway and you look to the Aberdeen fields, you know, and, 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 and the fields out of, offshore London and and you look to the stuff out you know off the coast of Alaska and you start to to kind of find similarities and it's you know my team and I look through that data and we try to that's where we focus in our, our research efforts and, and focus in to find some of the similarities so that we can accelerate and bring those lessons and knowledge to help guide Guyana as it goes through those same you know as it goes through the growth cycle. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. I learned a lot from that response. This is fascinating. I love how you said that, you, like, like with anything else, like your reference in series one to real estate, when you're investing in real estate or looking to do a development, you look for comps, right? But you want, mm -hmm. you want what is actually comparable. So basically, Guyana isn't comparable to Trinidad. It's like apples and oranges. But at the same time, you can look to them and see lessons learned, what not to do. But you want to put them in, in, in the same ballpark with the countries that they're going to be operating at a level at. So yeah, that was very insightful. Thanks for listening in to this special bonus series of the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast on Guyana Startup Nation. You've just listened to part two, the Guyana story. If you enjoyed listening in, rate us on your favorite podcast platform. 
And if you thought this was informative, we look forward to seeing you for part three, Startup Nation. Until next time, rare ones. Bye for now.